Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you another recording from the bi-monthly meetings of the Whitechapel Society 1888. And what you're about to hear is the December 2019 presentation by Dr Elizabeth Yardley, entitled The Public's Fascination with Serial Killers. Without further ado, let's venture into the Chamberlain Hotel. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to part two of the Whitechapel Society's December 2019 meeting. And we are delighted to welcome Professor Elizabeth Yardley uh, to meet to join us this afternoon. Elizabeth is an Associate Professor of Criminology and a Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. And her research in, uh, explores unusual types of homicide and the social context in which these crimes occur. Uh, publishes her research on her blog, which you can access by just searching for her on Google and Blogspot. And uh, I had a look at, a look at it myself the other day, and there's a couple of very interesting articles on it. One is about Madeleine McCann, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Madeleine McCann and the shameful realities of missing children. And another one on the new BBC thriller series, One of Us, a feast of crime and deviance. Sounds right up our street. Um, so far, um, she's been on our screens with Town and Country Murder and Crimes That Shook Britain. And she's currently working on an analysis of the Beverly Alec case. Now, I know that many of us walk around Whitechapel during an evening. And if you go down to Whitechapel any evening of the year, what you will see are tour guides. Jack the Ripper tour guides everywhere. We have one with us tonight. <laughs> one of the best. Um, and they're always full. There seems like there's a lot of them, and there's a huge interest in Jack the Ripper. Indeed, the Jack the Ripper Museum is just down the road here in Cable Street. So there's obviously a fascination with it. And of course, here we are. We're all here together, um, interested in Victorian crime and other crimes as well. So I have often wondered, why is that? What is it about um, its crime and serial killers that make us so fascinated? So that is what Professor Yardley will be talking to us about this afternoon. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand you straight over and give a big welcome to Elizabeth Yardley. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here to speak with you all today um, about uh, a topic that, that I seem to live and breathe. And I was just saying over lunch, actually, that my bookshelf um, has, has attracted quite a lot of comments from the various people who've been in and out of my house doing work over the past few months, uh, because it is just serial killers, serial killers, and more serial killers, and I wonder what on earth it is I do for a living. Um, so serial killers are very much part of my professional life. I spend a, a lot of my time talking about them, a lot of my time researching them, finding out about them, um, and... I think we have a tendency to, to see serial killers as, as these, these kind of types that are distinct and that are separate from the rest of us. They're, they're these kind of mysterious figures. But the more time I've spent researching serial homicide, uh, the more I've realized that actually they are not that different from the rest of us at all. Um, and I think one of the, the key parts of my research that I emphasize is not just looking at the individual and their behavior and their choices, but the society, the social context in which they existed, the kind of values, the kind of ideologies that have 
shaped them and have shaped the, the people that, that they became. Um, and that's something that I carry with me into my work today. Um, I look largely at gender-based violence at the moment and the use of technology in violence. But my roots very much in, in serial homicide. Uh, it's, it's something that I continue to, to look at. So um, today what I want to start off by doing, which is the way that I start all of my lectures at university, is with definitions. So when it comes to actually defining serial homicide, Academics have been very, um, shall we say, busy in this regard. Um, but a book that I wrote with my colleague David Wilson a few years ago, where we looked at female serial killers, we just did some research on the number of definitions that there were of serial homicide. Uh, and we were absolutely flabbergasted at the, the number of different definitions. And we found uh, 20, and we just stopped counting after that. Um, so pretty much every criminologist, every forensic psychologist that comes along and studies serial murder will kind of make their own mark on it by um, imposing their own definition. And I think that has actually become a little bit of a distraction from some of the, what I would consider to be the, the more important questions in terms of why do people choose to engage in, in this behaviour? What are the motivations behind it? And I think we have got too stuck, actually, at this, this first hurdle um, far too often. Um, but the two main definitions that I tend to work from um, are the FBI definition, um, the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender or offenders in separate events, and the definition that um, myself, David, and our colleague Adam Lines. Adam Lines is one to watch, by the way. Um, he's a real up-and-coming up criminologist. Um, we, we look at there being three or more murders, so, so we have a different kind of number of, of actual events that we look at. But serial homicide is not the only type of multiple homicide, is it? Um, and we have another two categories, and it's important to distinguish serial homicide from the other types of multiple homicide when we're, we're looking at it. So um, serial, mass, or spree. These are, are three quite distinct different types of multiple murderer. And they, they, they draw on quite similar criteria, but they emphasize different elements of that criteria. So when you look at the, the number of victims, that is, is obviously different. Um, this is based on the FBI work back in the, the 1980s, um, where mass was four or more, um, was two or more serial, three or more. And I'll go on to talk about why that has changed a little bit uh, in a moment. So the numbers of victims is different. Also, spatial and temporal elements, so in terms of place and in terms of time, that differs as well. So when we have mass pillars and spree pillars, they tend to be quite continuous and contained. Um, they will be over fairly quickly. Um, they will happen in the, the same location or very similar locations. Serial is much more episodic, it's much more interrupted. There is a sense in which the offender returns to some elements of a normal life in between the individual homicides, whereas with mass and spree, it's kind of, it's this kind of blitz event where it's all over relatively quickly. So that's the differences between mass, spree and serial. So serial is much more spread out in terms of the number of events, in terms of the number of killing locations, in terms of the number of victims, uh, and there is a so-called cooling off period in that, whereas mass and spree are quite different. They're much more continuous and contained. 
Now, in terms of the, the actual numbers, um, there's been quite a lot of, of debate over this in the academic community because back in the 1980s, the FBI agreed with us in terms of the number of, of victims we, we say is, is, is the, the kind of benchmark for the serial killer. They agreed it was three, three or more victims. But back in 2008, the FBI revised their definition down to two or more victims. And that was no accident. Um, and if we think what happened between 88 and 2008, well, the big event was the was September the 11th, 2001. Uh, because after that, an awful lot of police and law enforcement resources were focused on terrorism, were focused on security services. And we found that resources available for investigating multiple homicide and, and that kind of, of stuff, uh, and especially domestic homicide as well, domestic violence, those resources tended to be channeled towards the, the counter-terror um, counter policing and investigation. So we didn't think it was all that surprising that the FBI changed the definition of, of serial down to two or more victims, because you're widening the scope there, aren't you? You're increasing the number of cases to which the serial homicide definition applies. And that, in turn, brings with it more resources. So this, this kind of definition, this definitional kind of disagreement that we continue to have, it's very much context-rooted. It's rooted in the, the environment in which serial homicide is investigated. It's rooted in the political context. It's rooted in in events that go much more wider than the actual crimes that are being investigated. And a lot of people say, actually, it's a good thing that the FBI are now defining it as two or more killings, because, well, it's a preventative thing. If somebody's killed twice, then they have the capacity to kill more. So isn't it a good idea to, to target the resources at cases where it's, it's two? But also, uh, there are some cases where where we think the label of serial killer is being applied, where it's not really appropriate. So if you have a case where the, there's a gang homicide and um, a particular gang member is killed and then a witness to that homicide is killed, say, a week or two weeks later, is that the same thing as a serial killer like Ted Bundy or Dennis Rader? Well, no, it's, it's not really. So it does bring with it some issues. But the key thing to emphasize, really, when we look at definitions, is that serial murder is, and serial homicide, rather, is socially constructed. It is whatever we decide it is. It is what people who have the power to impose these definitions believe is important. So when we look at, at serial killers, in the UK here, um, we have far fewer serial killers to study than my colleagues in, in the United States. Um, who have hundreds and, and hundreds of, of serial killers. Um, and I would like to start off with, with this slide, um, just to, to test people's knowledge, essentially, about British serial killers. So if we go through them one by one, can you tell me uh, who these serial killers are? So who's number one? Peter Sutcliffe, yeah, Yorkshire Ripper. Number two, Dennis Nilsson. Harold Shipman. Levi Belfield, Henry and Brady, and the West. You guys know your stuff. So these are some very well-known British serial killers because, well, we don't have many serial killers in Britain. And the ones that we, we do 
have, we, we think we, we tend to know about them, don't we? Or do we? We'll see later. And I think I, I think we would lose count of the, the number of books and documentaries and films and, and fictional series that have been made as a result of, of the killings that these people carry out. Um, there is a, a real market for serial murder. It's something that people are absolutely fascinated by. Um, and, and some of the reasons for that are what I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, so let's start off with the first one. So why are we so fascinated by serial killers? And reason number one, I think it is quite simply that serial killers are quite exciting. Um, there's, there is a, a sort of a, a thrill that, that comes with being exposed to the kind of, of carnage, the, the kind of devastation that these individuals are able to enact. And it's that kind of compulsion to look at something that's unpleasant. It's like the driving past a car accident thing. And this fascination with serial killers, this fascination with the extremely violent, um, I think there is an awful lot of uh, discussion around it at the moment. There's an awful lot of kind of moralizing, some real harsh judgments made about people who like watching true crime documentaries. And I always kind of criticize that and say, well, hang on a minute. This is not anything new. People have been fascinated by violent and extreme and grotesque and horrible things that people do to each other for an incredibly long time. If you think back to the kind of things that the Greek and the Roman dramatists were writing about, you know, back in those days, they were stories of horrendous, horrible things. Uh, you think back to the Newgate calendar, uh, Penny Bloods, Penny Dreadfuls. Um, if you think back to the Victorians, their idea of a fun day out was to, to go to a public hanging. This is not anything new. People are interested in the macabre. People are interested in uh, the extremes of the, the human condition. And there is some research that says actually reading about serial killers, learning about serial killers, being exposed to these kind of crimes it stimulates adrenaline in us. And that is a, a hormone that is very powerful. It's very stimulating. And it, it is actually quite addictive. Uh, for if any of you know people who do extreme sports, uh, they won't just do it once. Um, they will do it time and time and time again because of the, the adrenaline. And it's argued that it's a similar thing with consuming true crime, with, with looking at this kind of thing. And also, we have this fascination with it. We want to be informed about serial homicide, but we also want to be entertained at the same time. And I think that there has been a, a bit of a blurring of the lines. And I talked to my students, we run a module at BCU called Crime Media Culture. And very often when the students come in for the first lecture, they think that there is a very clear dividing line between fact and fiction. And they will often start writing their essays, putting fact and fiction into different pots. Until we point out, actually, there's a real crossover between the two. Each feed into the other. Um, the, the drama feeds into the real, and the real feeds into the drama. So it's, it really does become part and parcel of the same thing. So the first reason is that, that kind of excitement. The second one, that serial killers are kind of enigmatic. And I think for individuals like ourselves, we have feelings, we have emotions, we experience things like shame and pity and remorse. We cannot comprehend the workings of a mind that decides to kill time and time again, that decides to inflict this amount of harm on, on other people. Because we've never been exposed to anything like this 
in, in our lives, this, this kind of extreme of behavior. So when we come across something like a serial killer, somebody who is so odd, who's so weird, so strange, they are this kind of enigma. They are this kind of puzzle that we need to make sense of, that we need to understand. Why would they choose to engage in, in this kind of behavior? And the fact that they are these, these strange, fascinating kind of creatures is made even more interesting by the fact that they, they don't look like scary monsters. These people are chameleons. They blend into the background. Uh, we know that Ted Bundy was seen as a, a very kind of respectable, very nice, charming, good-looking, middle-class young man. We know that Dennis Rader was very much a, a pillar of, of his community. So it's this idea that they are enigmatic and anybody could actually be one. Um, you, you could be living next door to, to somebody who's capable of, of this kind of thing. You could have some tangential family link to it. Um, so they, they're, they're enigmatic, they're, they're puzzles that we're trying to understand, but we're aware that they're, they're kind of all around us at the same time. The third one, the third reason that I think we're so fascinated with them is because serial killers are quite rare. Um, one of the rarest forms of violent crime Yet yeah, probably, if you were to look at the the, the listings on the, the Sky Crime channel, I'd say like a huge percentage of what that channel covers will be serial homicide, even though the, the vast majority of crime is actually things like robberies, burglaries, drugs offences, hundreds and thousands of, of those crimes committed every year, yet serial homicide, few and far between. So the rarity of this behaviour is, is interesting. And... We are interested in predators, a fascination with these, these kind of predatory personalities. So when we go to the zoo, the kind of animals that we want to look at are the predators, aren't they? We want to go and see the lions and the tigers and the, the bears and the snakes um, because those are the, the interesting ones. And that's what makes them intriguing. Um, the fact that they are so rare, that this extreme brutality, these killing machines, these kind of natural-born predators um, are, are out there uh, and, and they are committing these, these crimes time and time again. Um, when we have a case of a serial killer, we kind of latch onto it. We want to try and understand it. And this, this thing about them being rare forms of predator, and some of the language, I think, that we use around it does kind of emphasize how we consider them to be incredibly different from the rest of us. They are these kind of extreme versions of humans, whether we think they are an evolutionary throwback to um, previous times or whether we think they are some kind of advanced sort of human who doesn't feel empathy or remorse and we think that's a good thing. Um, actually, the more I study serial killers, the more I think actually they are not really that different from the rest of us. They are the extreme manifestation of values that we all subscribe to in the society in which we live. We live in a consumer, capitalist, neoliberal state um, where the, the kind of values that, that we are told are important are selfish individualism, narcissism, instant gratification, envy, hostile competition, success premised on the failure of other people. These are very much the messages of the consumer capitalist machine. Serial killers embody all of those values to an extreme degree, but they embody those values. 
And those are the values that underpin our society. So are they really that rare at all or unusual? Now, the next one, serial killers trigger fear. I think fear is, is one of our most basic and most powerful human emotions. Whenever we hear news of a potential serial killer, it kind of is a shock to our collective conscience. It, it makes us question our own safety, our own security. It disrupts our daily life, our status quo. It is almost like watching a real-life disaster movie. And when we look at fear, it's this emotion that has the capacity to change our behavior. That is an incredibly powerful thing, a feeling actually changing what we do on a daily basis, our normal lives becoming interrupted. And all of us will remember the Yorkshire Ripper case and the effects that that had on women in the, the north of England at the time in terms of, of going out, in terms of going about your, your daily business. And also the Son of Sam case in America in the 1980s. Because he was targeting women who had long, dark hair, Women started cutting their hair, they started dyeing their hair, they started buying wigs. They started physically changing their appearance because of the fear of this serial killer. So that fear has got this transformational power, and I think that is another reason why we find serial killers so fascinating. Because fear kind of evokes a, a sense of a loss of control over our own lives. And when we look at serial killers, they are much more fearful than spree killers or mass killers because of the time that they are killing over, because of those cooling off periods, because before they are apprehended, we don't know who they're going to kill next, when they're going to kill next, where they're going to kill next. It is something that really does infiltrate our consciousness. Next one. Serial killers allow us to play armchair detective. Um, now, I I think this is this is something that really has come on a lot in recent years with um, network technology, the internet, um, the presence of online forums and chat rooms where people exchange theories and ideas. And one of my uh, master's students a couple of years ago, actually, he did his dissertation looking at the serial killers thread or the serial killers subreddit on the platform Reddit. And he was looking at some of the conversations that people were having around the Long Island serial killer. In, uh, in New York, in, in Long Island. Um, and he was, was looking at the kind of conversations that were going on and the kind of things people were talking about. And he said it was like sort of witnessing some kind of investigation. Um, people were presenting evidence on these forums. People were swapping theories. They were arranging meetups and, and sort of Google Hangouts and, and that kind of thing uh, in order to pick over the, the evidence. Um, so I think this, this idea that, that we, can, we can use these cases to kind of test our own knowledge of humanity, we can use our own experiences and, and try and think like a victim or think like a serial killer. Why would somebody kill this person here? What does this case suggest? So the locations of the dump sites, what does that mean in terms of where this killer comes from? And we can kind of... We can, entertain ourselves for ages with that and get really, really absorbed in it and, and use our, our knowledge. So, so this idea of, of us becoming amateur detectives is, I think, a, a really important one. Um, and it's a, it's a very relevant one in an era of um, austerity in terms of cuts to, to police and budgets and, and that kind of thing. 
there was a debate going on a few years ago about actually bringing more general expertise into solving crimes, into solving cold cases, historical cases. Um, and there's a really good book, and I can actually see the front cover of it in my mind, um, but the author and the name of it has just completely escaped me. But it is about a case um, in the, the US where amateur detectives actually solved a, a murder case. Um, Deborah Halbert, I think, the skeleton crew. Yeah, that's it. Oh, don't know where that came from. But, but yeah, playing on chair detective. Reason number six, serial killers are good, kind of ghoulish fun. Um, and I know talking to some of my friends about weekends when they stay in and they, they watch, watch Netflix and they watch documentaries about serial killers, one after the other after the other, as a form of kind of escapism um, from their own quite controlled, responsible, relatively predictable, safe lives and, and daily routines. Um, and I think for some people there is perhaps that need for excitement, that need for a bit of danger and a bit of craziness that doesn't come from conditional formatting of an Excel spreadsheet. So it's, it's this, this idea that we can go into this world where these, these terrible things happen and we can experience that, but then we can come back out again to the safety and the security of our own existence. So serial killers are, for adults, what monster movies are for children. It's scary fun. It's like the haunted house. It's like the ghost ride. Because we're scared, we're fearful, but we're safe. Because, you know, the same way that children know that there isn't really a monster under bed or a, a scary person in the wardrobe, um, we still enjoy the fear. We enjoy the kind of... Um, the, the adrenaline, I suppose, that we, we get from that. It's safely behind our TV screens. It's not going to invade our lives. And lastly, this idea of a wound culture. Uh, it's a really, really interesting concept um, by the Canadian criminologist uh, Mark Seltzer. He first came up with this, this idea of wound culture. And he's written several books about true crime and, and wound culture and modernity. Um, which I did have to read with a dictionary uh, because he is quite eloquent, shall we say, in, um, in the way that he puts his ideas across. But if you really kind of drill down into to these, these books and, and these papers that he's written, this idea of wound culture is a really, really compelling one because what he's actually saying is that we live in a very individualistic society now um, where sense of collectivity, sense of community has been very much eroded and there are very, very few things that actually unite us, that actually bring us together. But he said there is one thing that still brings people together, and that's trauma. It's trauma and it's disaster. If you look at incidents of terrorism, um, if you look at, at, at times where people really rally together, where social divisions tend to just be completely smashed, are when people are, are trying to, to recover or, or survive uh, an experience like that. Um, and Seltzer talks about this idea of the pathological public sphere, the idea that trauma is that last link between the individual and society, the public and the private, the one thing that will unite people in a society that is very divided and, and that is incredibly polarised. So serial killing and this, the kind of media that has evolved around it is, Mark Seltzer says, a symptom of this wound culture. Um, so we can we can see that in in coverage of of, of quite a lot of, of serial killer cases, 
Um, so Ipswich, back in 2006, um, the, the Steve Wright's murders, uh, the community really coming together around that, people discussing it at work. It became this kind of, it was the rolling news serial killer story um, that people would talk about. Um, people talk about at the train station, they talk about around the water cooler at work with people that they otherwise really would not have a time of day for. Um, so it is one of those things. And there's another case as well, which always gets people talking, is the Madeleine McCann case. It's another case that is full of trauma. Everybody has an opinion on that. Everybody will, will talk to you about that. You can randomly strike up a conversation at, at the bus stop with, with people who wouldn't normally really want to talk to you because everyone has an opinion about that. And that is because of the, the trauma that runs through that case, according to Mark Seltzer. It's that that is actually uniting it. So I kind of hinted at this um, a little bit earlier when I showed that slide of British serial killers. Um, I said, well, there aren't many serial killers in Britain, are there? And we're going to know who all of them are, aren't we? But are we? So what I've got here are some more British serial killers who fit those definitions that we have of serial homicide. Um, so just have a look at the, the images on that slide and, and see if you can tell me who those people are. Because you guys are experts, you're probably going to get all of these. And it's just going to completely destroy my point. But let's see. Who do we think that is? First one, number one. That is Anthony Hardy, the so-called Camden Ripper. So in 2003, he received three life sentences for murder. It's suspected that he could have killed up to nine victims, uh, but the three victims that we know about, Sally White, Elizabeth Ballard, Bridget McClenahan. How about number two? Nope. That guy is Trevor Hardy. And in the mid-1970s, he committed three murders. Janet Leslie Stewart, Wanda Scala, and Sharon Mosoff. Fact number four. That guy is Peter Moore. Um, and he was active in North Wales in the mid-1990s. Um, so between September and December of 1995, he killed four men. Henry Roberts, Edward Carthy, Keith Randalls, and Anthony Davis. So he's killed four, four people. Fact number six there. That is Robin Ligus, um, who killed in Shrewsbury in Shropshire in 1994, um, convicted of killing Robert Young, and then again in 2010, convicted of killing two further victims, Trevor Bradley and Brian Cole. So this is a, a murderer who went to prison and then was released and then killed again when he came out. What about number five? That's Stephen Greveson. Yes, Sunderland. Yay. You know your stuff. Brilliant. So he was active in Sunderland um, in the 1990s. It's a case I'm very passionate about. Um, one of um, my colleagues that I work quite closely with is from the Sunderland area. And I keep trying to convince him to write a book about this case because it's one that really does deserve to have its story told. Um, he killed four teenage boys, Simon Martin, David Grief, David Hanson, and Thomas Kelly. I think he's up for parole soon. We'll see what happens with that one. Um, what about number four? 
Yes, that's Stephen Akin Morelli, who murdered five elderly people between 1995 and 1998. So they were Marjorie Ashton, Dorothy Harris, Jeremiah Cargill, and Eric and Joan Boardman. Um, he confessed to some of those killings, um, but he committed suicide pre-trial, so he's never formally convicted of them. So, we've got some British serial killers there that we didn't all know. Um, and it's really interesting because that forces us to ask the question, well, how do we actually come to know about serial killers? Why don't we know about these people? Well, not all of them have made the news. Not all of them have received extensive coverage. And as a result, not all of them have cemented themselves in the public imagination. And there are a few kind of criminological concepts that help us understand why that might be the case. Um, the first one is something that we call the ideal victim. So when some people become the victims of crime, we're very, very quickly to be sympathetic towards them and say, that's a terrible thing that happened to you, you didn't deserve that, you're a completely innocent victim, how awful. With some other people, we don't tend to be quite as sympathetic. Um, we say, well, you kind of had that coming, you shouldn't have been involved in those sort of activities or... You should have known that that was going to happen. Or, well, what did you expect living the kind of lifestyle that you were living? And we find that some victim groups are actually quite stigmatized. And we see an awful lot of victim blaming that goes on. We hold them responsible for their own murders. Uh, we find that's very much the case with, with sex workers, with young people who've run away from home, with people who are involved in, in drugs and, and substance misuse. Um, with people who are homosexual, um, and that's especially been the case in uh, with regards to the Stephen Port killings, because that was uh, a, that was the case of serial homicide, and I was expecting an awful lot more coverage than than that case actually got, and I think that was because of the homophobia that that does surround cases like that. So ideal victimhood, we want our victims to be. Um, kind of attractive and newsworthy and innocent and deserving of sympathy. Uh, and that's why the media don't tend to cover those cases where the, the victimhood is not quite as compelling. And there's also the idea of news values. So um, stories have to be sort of newsworthy. They have to be compact and efficient and able to be simplified. And we don't want them to be too horrific um, so there are some cases of, of serial homicide where the details are just so gruesome that actually they're kind of un unpalatable and news editors don't actually want to cover them in, in that great amount of detail. So a lot of serial killers will go unseen. And that's something that we, we always need to be aware of. Um, so Yes, we are fascinated by serial killers, and I'm fascinated by all serial killers because I tend to find out about all cases of, of serial homicide that, that happen in this country. Um, but the general public as a whole, because of the filtering that happens through the media, they only get to find out about a, a fraction of them. And I would like to end with um, the last slide. And these are faces that are even less well-known, I'd argue, than the faces on the last slide. These are the victims of serial killers. Some of them, the victims of very, very prominent serial killers. So here we've got Susan Rushua, Suzanne Blamers, Shelley Armitage, victims of the, the self... Sorry? 
Yep, crossbow. Yeah, yeah. He called himself a crossbow cannibal uh, at his first court appearing. Um, when court appearance, when the, the judge asked him to confirm his name, he said, "I am the crossbow cannibal." Next day, splashed across all of the headlines, front page of every single news ca- newspaper, the crossbow cannibal. This guy was was his own marketing director. Um, but in the, the process of creating that persona and the media cottoning onto it and picking it up and basically helping him brand himself, we've forgotten the, the names of his victim. Next, we have Marsha McDowell and Amelie Delagrange and Millie Dowler, victims of Levi Belfield, absolutely. Um, other, I think that Millie Dowler tends to be the, the, the better-known victim um, out of, of that particular case, um, given... I think that, that she was a missing person for a fairly long period of time, um, given that her family were incredibly active in, in bringing her, her case to, the, to, to be in the public domain. And the other two, not quite as well known. Um, the one that we have on the end there, Janet Leslie Stewart, she was a victim of Trevor Hardy. Um, in the Trevor Hardy case I've referred to. Um, but because that case happens in a very sort of working-class community. Uh, my colleague David Wilson has, has written and researched that case in quite a lot of detail. And he said um, newspaper editors described that area to him as fish and chippy uh, in terms of what they thought of it. Um, so lots of judgments made about social class, hugely influential in the 70s time of those cases. At the bottom here, we have David Grief, Simon Martin, David Hanson, and Thomas Kelly, all victims. Yes, yeah, victims of the Sunderland killer, Stephen Greenson. And these are our faces that we just wouldn't know, aren't they? Um, and and that's, that is one, one story to, to really look out for, uh, because that says an awful lot, I think, about Sunderland in the 1980s, the 1990s, this post-industrial community, um, where working class people really did not matter and working class young men even less so. And I think that's part of the reason why why that, that case didn't have a lot of momentum. And I should imagine that, that most of you here will know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So victims of, of Jack the Ripper. And the, the fact that the victims' names just kind of fade um, and and the, the Jack the Ripper brand is one that has really stuck isn't it it's one that's generated uh, an awful lot of interest uh, an awful lot of uh, of what you would call murderabilia uh, and a whole industry around it um, and the, the people who, who lost their lives in the creation of that that, that individual that that character um, do tend to, to be forgotten but I think things are gradually changing. I think because of academics like myself and David and um, some of the, the people who especially work in the violence against women area, so people like Laura Richards, um, very keen on making these stories stories of victims rather than stories of killers. And that's something that, that I'm always very keen to do. It, it's about honouring the victims rather than, than celebrating the killers. Because I think very often... I think in the society that we live in, we have almost responsibilized victims, and that's victims of any kind of crime. It's not just victims of serial homicide. As the state has kind of taken a bit of a step back 
in the last 30 years or so is that the neoliberal project has really gained momentum. It started to become our own responsibility to protect ourselves from crime, to prevent ourselves from becoming victims. And, and when we do become victims, often, um, why didn't you have your burger alarm? Why were you walking down that street? Why were you dressed like that? You know, and it's the behaviour of the perpetrator that, that isn't really analysed as much as much as it, it should be and, and, and called out as much as it should be. Because we all know that when people engage in zero homicide, it's because they've made a decision to do that. They have decided to take the life of another person. They've made that decision time and time again. Uh, and it's their behaviour that we should be focusing on rather than the behaviour of the victim. So... That concludes my presentation. Thank you very much for listening. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Fantastic. Um, do we have any questions from the floor? Yes, Sue. Thank you, Elizabeth, very much. That, that, that was totally brilliant. Thank you. Um, I noticed you used the word homicide as opposed to murder, and at one point you corrected yourself. Yes. <laughs> so you let murder slip out and then changed it to... Yeah. What is the difference? So um, the reason I use the word homicide, uh, it's not because I've watched too many US crime dramas. Uh, homicide is the term that we use in academia to actually refer to the act of taking someone else's life. Um, and murder and manslaughter and those terms then apply to the legal consequences that follow. So um, all killings that, that I look at will be homicides, um, but some of them will be murders, some of them will be manslaughters, depending on the amount of, of culpability and intention that is um, applied to the perpetrator when that goes through the criminal justice process. Um, and actually, one of the things I'm working on at the moment, I'm looking at cases of women killed by their male partners in so-called sex games gone wrong. And we're finding that we've seen an increase in the number of manslaughter convictions for that, as opposed to murder convictions recently, um, because of the, the kind of the, the cultural landscape in which we're living and the kind of blame that's attached to victims. Um, so all of those are homicides. Um, we're seeing increase in manslaughter, decrease in, in murder. And that is saying an awful lot, I think, about who we place responsibility on and who we hold accountable. So, yeah, homicide is the act, murder and manslaughter are the legal consequences. Okay, another question here. I'm not sure how to sort of say this, but um, the last couple of weeks there's been a TV programme where they've looked at um, people that have murdered and they've looked at their brain and looked at their childhood. Um, has that ever been done with serial killers? So there has been some very, very small research studies um, done with serial killer populations. Um, have any of you heard of the, the academic Adrian Rain? He's written a really, really good book called The Anatomy of Violence. And he's very interested in the biological drivers of violent behavior. And he did, I think it was, it was either one case or two cases that he looked at of serial killers. And he did notice, actually, that there's a difference in the brains of serial killers versus non-serial killers. Um, the, the part of the brain that is the kind of emotional processing center um, that helps us decide what's right, what's wrong, what's socially acceptable is noticeably different, is noticeably smaller and less active in serial killers than it is in, in non-serial killers. 
So there's the argument that these people's brains look different, therefore could there be a biological component. But what I always come back with when I'm presented with that evidence is, was that serial killer born with their brain like that, or did their brain develop in that way because of the environment in which they live, because of neglect or abuse or, or, or those kind of factors that we see in a lot of serial killers. So I think that the, the biological component is something that has been very much neglected by academia in recent years, but I think it's one that we need to look at, look at again, definitely. Yep, I have a question at the back. Yep. Thank you. So what would you say then? Were they born like that or did their brain develop like that? I'd say it's a mixture of both um, because we come across quite a few cases um, of serial homicide where you have a serial killer and then you go and you look at their siblings and their close relatives and you find actually there isn't that kind of behaviour being displayed by them. So Joanne Dennehy, um, the, the woman who killed multiple men about five or six years ago in this country, um, her sister has a, a fairly flawless distinguished career in the military and has lived this very kind of regular life, having never broken the law, and yet those two people came from exactly the same family, so they've got very similar genetic makeup, they had a very similar upbringing. One decides to kill multiple people, one decides to lead a very regular law-abiding life. So I think there must be biological components in there somewhere. No. No. No, she didn't. So it's, it's, it's something that, that, and I think it's, as I was saying earlier, actually, it's a question that criminologists have just kind of quietly walked away from, this idea of, like, individual motivation. What drives this kind of behavior? What makes people do these things? And it's something that we really need to get, get to grips with because I think it's, it's something that we should be really ashamed of, that I can't stand up here and answer that question. Why did that sibling become a serial killer and that one didn't? Because we need to know that stuff if we're going to prevent the kind of violence that we've seen. Oh, Sue, another question. I'm just going to bring the microphone down to you. Just going back to the definitions, you know, you've got the serial killer, the spree killer, the mass killer. Would a fourth definition of, of terrorist um, be warranted um, that the, 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 the mass killer or the spree killer that's motivated by an ideology. Is, is there a case for creating that category? I think there's something that we definitely need to look at because when I look at the conversations that happen in academia around terrorism, they happen in this little corner of like security studies experts who don't really like talking to you know criminologists who study serial and multiple homicide. But yeah, I very much agree with you. I think we need to have a look at, at that because when we're looking at those those definitions, yes, they fit the mass, they fit the, the spree, they sometimes fit the serial definition. Um, and we, we need to look at what criteria are we using and actually how helpful are these definitions. So if we look at the way that we're responding to um, terrorism, if we look at the way that we're we're actually dealing with people who are convicted of terrorist offences or planning terrorist offences, are we doing that properly? Well, if we look at what happened a couple of weeks ago, obviously not. Um, we need to be looking at that in, in much greater detail, especially in terms of ideology. Because a lot of, of serial killers you know, claim to be motivated by ideology, these mission-orientated serial killers. Okay. 
that's great. There's no further questions. Then it just uh, remains for me to ask you all to please say a very big thank you to Professor Elizabeth Yardley. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well done. Me. And uh, one, one more thank you I'd like to give on behalf of all of us. Thank you to all of the staff here at the Chamberlain. Fantastic job this afternoon. Really enjoyed it and terrific service. Thank you. <laughs> and that was Dr. Elizabeth Yardley at the December 2019 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. We would like to thank Dr. Yardley, Steve Ratty and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society journal. <laughs>